crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brent Nachtigall, your host today. I'm coming to you today from the United Kingdom, from the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College, just north of Stratford-upon-Avon in the Midlands region of the United Kingdom. This past weekend, I took a trip with my wife to the southwestern part of the United Kingdom, to the area of Cornwell. And while I wasn't expecting it to be a visit of archaeological or historical significance in terms of what I would discover or the, the history there that I would learn, it, uh, it turned out to be that, exactly that, and turned out to be an interesting discovery of history related to your Bible. Now, Christopher Reams has been talking quite a lot on this show about the movements of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. He has talked about the United Kingdom and the travels of some of the tribes to this territory to make up the peoples that we know today of the United Kingdom and those of Ireland also, different tribes of Israel, at least some of the tribes. And what I uncovered down there in uh, Cornwell uh, on just a little getaway was some interesting proof of the Israelite connections to this region brought out by archaeology and also the Bible. Now, this is not some type of pseudoscience. This is not something based on folklore. This is based on archaeological history put alongside uh, the history of, of the Bible and also secular historians. While I was on this trip, we, my wife and I, we just used the time to uh, relax a little bit away from the kids, and we also took a few hikes. And I was staying on the one of the in the northern one of the northern coves of Cornwell, this area called Saint Agnes, a little town. And then we walked over a headland of nice cliffs, and in the next little cove, we found a tin mine, a tin mine where there are tin works still done. At this point, it's more a, a tourist attraction to show you the history of the mines of this region. The area of Cornwall is well known for its tin mines throughout all, uh, all known history, all written history. Referring to this area, it was the dominant feature that historians talked about for this area of, of Cornwall. Uh, and next door as, as well of Devon. Both these areas are renowned historically for their tin. This was something that I had known of just uh, passing, uh, in passing. And, and even before I went down there, I was talking to Chris and he said, uh, watch out for the tin mines or go and have a look at some of the tin mines. And I didn't really think much of it. Of course, I had known of the history in terms of uh, what Chris was talking about, how there are tribal affiliations or Israelite tribal affiliations to some of the culture, some of the names of the places down there. But I hadn't really given it too much too much thought until, until this visit uh, because some of those connections were uh, more in written documents and what people said, place names rather than uh, hard evidence in terms of the physical stuff, the archaeological record. 
So I was walking along one of these headlands with my wife and we came across this museum, a functioning tin mine and, and smelting facility to this day. And as I was walking through there, I talked to the owner of the place and he said just before I was there, there was a, there was a son of an Israelite, uh, Israeli archaeologist that was touring the facility and he talked about how just last year there was the discovery of tin ingots off the coast of Haifa in Israel's north. And I didn't catch up with the individual that said this story, but it was fascinating to me. And I I kind of remembered it a little bit that there was this story that came out in 2019 to show that not only were tin ingots found uh, in shipwrecks off the coast of Haifa, but they were also traced, the tin was traced to its source for the first time, and that source being Cornwall, the region of Cornwall where where I was walking around. And it was fascinating to me to hear about this. And so I determined once I got back uh, on Sunday to start looking into it. And I'm going to present to you what I found in both the Bible and the archaeological record that shows that it was highly likely that Israelites, Israelites, some of the tribes of Israel, were the ones possibly mining, but definitely transporting this tin back to the coast of Israel. Now, if that sounds crazy, bear with me. We're going to go through the biblical, the Bible, Bible's account and also the archaeological account as well. So what are tin ingots? An ingot is basically the way of transporting a mass of a certain element or compound, kind of how we think of gold bars being the way that we count gold or transport gold, and then the gold is then melted down and, and produces certain elements, uh, certain um, uh, ornaments or what have you, uh, jewelry, or is used for other purposes, it's transported in a brick. And a brick of tin or other metals is called an ingot. And so going back to the 70s and 80s, they've found a a number of these ingots all across the Middle East, but only now have they been able to find out where exactly the tin came from that made up those ingots. And you have different tin mines all across uh, the area going over to Afghanistan, Turkey, uh, some parts of Spain as well, and also in, in the area of Cornwall and Devon, as, as well as other areas. And it was, it was assumed up to this point, to the point of this 2019 study, that the tin that was used in the, the promised land or the area of ancient Israel during the time period of the judges or time period of Solomon or David or thereafter, that the tin came from some more local source, somewhere that's closer to Israel. But that is not the case. We know now that it came from the region of Cornwall. Now, tin was important, not of itself. Tin is an important component of the alloy that would make bronze, a mixture of different metals, mostly copper. And I think it's one eighth or something like that. Tin goes into it as well as other other elements, other metals and things. And in terms of history, we know that the copper that was used 3,000 years ago in Israel was mined locally. It was it was. It was everywhere. Uh, we we know that the, there were t- there were copper mines towards the south, over into Jordanian territory, down in Timna, uh, just above Elat. Uh, there was uh, copper, and yet to make bronze, 
and to be in the Bronze Age, you need bronze. Uh, so if you need, if you need to, if we're talking about the period of uh, even late bronze, the period of uh, the early Israelite coming into the land, uh, the early Israelites periods of the judges, that is the late bronze going over into the Iron Age, um, these years of 1400, 1300, 1200, there was a lot of bronze work. Bronze was the, the metal that was used to make weapons, to make jewelry, to make any a lot of things, and you needed tin to do it. So they had the copper. Where did they get the tin? So these ingots that were discovered in these shipwrecks, they were found in and around the Haifa Bay area, and they have been dated to around 1200 BCE, 3200 years ago. A long time. They're dated by the other finds that were found around them. And then through isotopic analysis and other analysis of the trace elements, we can find out or deduce where they came from. And so they can look at the tin from these different areas. And what they said in 2019, and this was a, a groundbreaking study, as they are all called, uh, that was published in, in June of 2019 in the Plus One Journal. They analyzed these 27 blocks of tin, and some of them, three of them, the ones found in Haifa, and there was, I think there was one Cyprus and one elsewhere. The ones that were from the area of Haifa came from a different location to the others, to the others found around the Mediterranean basin. These were sourced most definitely in mines in Cornwall, right where I was walking. Who knew? Who knew as I was uh, up there that that's, this was going to be the case? Okay, so that is the archaeological discovery that kind of shocked everybody that we had tin being used to make the, the bronze and that was sourced far from the coast of Israel. Now, who was living on the coast of Israel around 1200? And we are talking before the time period of the Philistines, it looks like. So there was probably local Canaanites. And right at this point around Haifa going up to Tyre and Sidon to modern-day Lebanon, Aksiv region in Israel, you have a people that are coming into their own known as the Phoenicians. These Phoenician peoples aren't known in the Bible by that name. History actually doesn't talk about the Phoenicians, Phoenician people as a using that term till about 700 years after this time that we're talking about. Nevertheless, we know that there is a people living here that came into this land around the same time that the Israelites did, uh, and that they were a seafaring people. They would end up setting, setting up shop and different colonies spread out through the Middle East, Cyprus, Crete. You had them in North Africa. You had them in Spain. You had them in some parts of France. And you also had them, if you look at the written records of history, you have writers such as Herodotus who wrote in the 4th century or the 5th century BCE. So just after, um, well, just during, just after the round time of Nehemiah, I suppose, um, is when you had Herodotus writing and he was a Persian and he was writing about how these Phoenicians, they traveled all the way up to the islands in the western part, the Tin Islands, he called them in the western part of Europe. And that's where they got their tin. And that's where he said the Persians got their tin also. And so this location of what exactly Herodotus was talking about, we didn't really know. But since he said the Phoenicians got their tin from northwest 
uh, Northwestern Europe, from the Isles, from the Tin Isles, as he called it, in Northwest Europe. And we know now that the people that were living on the Phoenician coast, when the Phoenicians lived there, did get their tin from Cornwall uh, and from Devon, this little area next to Cornwall. We can say now that Herodotus was talking about the British Isles. The Phoenicians made it all the way to the British Isles and they traded, mined, received a lot of tin and brought it back. So these Phoenicians, again, are an enigmatic uh, people. They are an enigma. Nobody knows the ethnicity of them. There's a book that came out just last year, 2018, and basically said, these people are all of us. We don't know who they are. Their, their ethnicity is mixed. Now, while the Bible does say that Phanus, or there was a there was a man that was a son of Canaan that was going that ha- would have that name. As far as an individual people of a people of Phoenicians making up um, somebody living on the coast of northern Israel, we don't really have them around till around twelve hundred. So around this same time. But what I'm interested in is what the Israelites were doing around 1200. And the Bible is very descriptive. It's very descriptive of the land that should belong to the Israelites at that time, whether they had taken the land, what the tribes were doing in that land, and what they weren't doing. So if you can imagine Israel coming into the promised land around 1400, that's the Bible, the date that the Bible would give them, And the Bible specifically talks about them having this campaign under the reign of Joshua where many kings were destroyed, many peoples were destroyed. But it also says that they would inhabit the towns of these people, those towns that weren't burnt down, and there were only a few that were burnt down. Uh, They would inhabit the fields of these people. They would not dig wells. They would not build houses. They would not have to build vineyards. They would actually live in those, the ones that the Canaanites set up couple hundred years after that, they would start to build their own settlements. They outgrew those Canaanite uh, settlements. And then you see Canaan, uh, you see settlements popping up everywhere throughout ancient Israel. Now, in terms of the land that was given to each of the tribes, you'll recall that there was about 13 tribes. As they were coming into the promised land, you had two and a half tribes, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh that would occupy the territory of modern-day Jordan today, and then going up, or some of the territory of modern-day Jordan, going up into the Golan Heights, that would be, let's call it East Manasseh. And then you had the other tribes, the other nine or so, nine tribes that were set up on the western part of the Jordan River, all the way to the coastline. That was the land that was given to them. That was the land that God intended them to take. But they weren't that successful at taking it all. After Joshua died, you can see in some of the middle chapters of Joshua, which is actually uh, some of what uh, took place towards the end of Joshua, and also the first book of Judges, that there was lots of land that was left to take. Some tribes did better than other tribes at taking over their land. Again, there was no nation of Israel at this point. There was no king of Israel. There was no King Saul. That would happen later. You have a confederacy of tribes with each of their tribal chiefs, tribal princes that would come together at certain times throughout this 300 plus years of the judges and that would try and fight together to remove the outside influence from taking over the nation. This was a a very dark period of Israel's history, very dark period where you would have years of plenty that would be replaced by years of sin, years of unthankfulness, and God would bring an oppressor in, take them over, 
correct them through that. They would cry out to God and God would send them a deliverer, a savior, a judge to come and rule over them for a time. But let's talk about this area where these uh, tin ingots were found around the Haifa Bay region. Which Israelite tribes were meant to be there? You can go over to the book of Judges chapter 1, uh, the first the first uh, chapter in the book of Judges, and this talks about the land that was left to take over after Joshua had already conquered it. There were bits of land that were left to take over. This was God's intent to not drive out all the inhabitants straight away, but to take away to take the land bit by bit. Again, after the initial conquest of the lands removed the worst of the people that were engaged in all manner of horrific, horrific uh, sins against themselves, really, and they will be resurrected and given another chance to live and a chance to live underneath God's law in the future. That's what your Bible says. They will have another shot at it, and yet they, some of them were, were put out of their misery uh, back then. But there were still Canaanites in the land after Joshua lived, and it was up to the tribes and the tribal elders to come together and to fully Take their inheritance. Go take it. If you have the faith to take it, be strong and of good courage, as Joshua would tell them, as Moses told him, then you can go and take over all of these lands that I have given you. And yet they didn't do it. Many of the tribes didn't do it. In fact, all of the tribes didn't fully take over their lands. Let's notice the tribe of Asher. The tribe of Asher. This is Judges chapter th- uh, 1 And verse 31, it says this, Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acre, and that's where Acre is today, uh, just north of of Haifa, Uh, nor did the inhabitants, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor the inhabitants of Alav, nor the inhabitants of Achziv. And you know where these places are. These are all along the coastline going from Haifa northwards. In another portion of Scripture, uh, in Joshua, it talks about the Asherites that were in this territory all the way down to, to Haifa itself, to Mount Carmel. That's where they their tribal inheritance was. That was their lot that they were given that they should go and take care of. But, verse 32, But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. The Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So you've got all these places that they should have driven out the people, they didn't, and it includes this whole coastline, Tyre, Zidon, Aksiv, down to Haifa. And if you look at where the people, historians would put the Phoenicians today, they would put them in that same territory. The Bible here talks about Canaanites being there that they didn't, didn't drive out, but instead... They dwelt among them. The Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, these people that were inhabiting the coast of northern Israel, where history would say the Phoenicians took up residence shortly after this. So that is Asher. What about Dan? And there's a reason why I'm talking about about Dan and Asher in particular. You can just read, uh, skip one verse, we'll go to verse 34, and we'll talk about the, uh, the Danites. Verse 34, And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not suffer them to come down into the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount, all these places, in Ajalon, 
all these places basically from Tel Aviv upwards, the land that would eventually become the Philistines. So you have the Danites that were meant to be on the coast and you have the Asherites that were meant to be on the coast. And yet history knows, and the Bible says they didn't dwell, they didn't dwell there uh, by themselves. The Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the North coast and the Danites were driven back. But where did the Danites then go? You go over to Judges chapter 18. The Bible talks about where the Danites are going to go. Judges chapter 18. This is a really interesting passage of Scripture. It shows that the Danites did not accept what God had given them, but they wanted to go elsewhere. And this is something that the Danites did all the time. They were uh, very rarely on board with everything the Israelites were doing, and instead... They they were quite. They showed their initiative and they spread forth. They they um, traveled. They went on journeys. They set up colonies everywhere. This was the way that they worked. And you'll notice here, verse one of chapter eighteen. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and in those days, the tribe of Dan, the, the tribe of the Danites, sought them an inheritance to dwell in. For unto that day, all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. So other Danite, other Israelites had got their, got, got, got their inheritance, at least partially. Danites didn't get theirs, so they searched out a different spot. And you can tell through this whole chapter that they're going to head north. They're going to go up to the highlands, the hill country of Judah, then to Ephraim. They end up going all the way north of Hatzor, north of the, of the Kinneret, all the way to the source of the Jordan River. And you'll know that today as Tel Dan. Uh, Dan did this. Dan names things wherever it goes. It names them after their father, Dan. And they see this city of Leshem. It's called in the Bible. It's also called Laish elsewhere. And it's they say here uh, in this chapter about how that this city was something that would be easily to be overcome. It's far from Tyre and Zidon, uh, far enough that there's no time for people to come and save these, these people that we're going to overcome. And so Dan uh, gets, gets a, uh, a priest, goes up there, uh, takes over this land and they settle it. Notice what it says here in Judges chapter 19 and verse uh, 29. And they called the name of their city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born into Israel, howbeit the name of the city was Laish at the first. And they set up their own worship. You can see there that verse 30 says, And the children of Dan set up the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, which could read Moses, actually, if you look at the original documents, and he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan unto the day of the captivity of the land. And they set them up, Micah's graven image, which he made up all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So this was the original setting up of two uh, parts of worship. You had pagan Dan setting up his own idols in the north of Dan, and then you had the tabernacle being set up in Shiloh, and that's what God intended. That's where the rest of Israel Israelites um, would would uh, set up there, uh, where the rest of Israelites would properly worship God. But not Dan. Dan was off by himself. Dan's always off by himself, doing his own thing. That's what he does. Okay, so this is in the very north. So if you can imagine now, if you've got a map in your mind's eye, you've got Haifa Bay all the way to the north to modern-day Lebanon, and you have in that area that should be Asher. But Asher didn't take out the inhabitants of the land, dwelt among the Canaanites. So you have a mixing now of Canaanites and Asherites in this area where the modern Phoenicians would be uh, around that same time. Then if you go eastward, 
You would go eastward across the Upper Galilee region, across the hills, and you have Dan. Dan is there in the north, uh, very much away from the rest of rest of Israel proper. And we're talking about the years around 1400 at this point. So slightly before, slightly before these ingots were found off the coast shipwrecks right there in Haifa Bay. I'm just setting up what the Israelites were doing and which tribes were there in this region. Dan and Asher. Okay, so let's zoom in a bit more specifically to the time at which these shipwrecks took place. What was going on on the coast? Who was there in terms of biblical history? Let's go over now back to Judges chapter chapter 4 and 5. Now, this history that we covered in Judges chapter 18 is likely a bit of an inset, talking about the Danites, where they moved after they didn't get their tribal inheritance. They moved to the north, which would be important, again, just because it does show a trait of the Danites. At this point in Judges chapter 5, in Judges chapter 4, it's detailing this battle, a battle between Barak, the king, or the the judge of Israel, who wasn't that good, and uh, a Naphtalite, I believe, and Deborah, who was brought in because Barak didn't want to lead the people and drive out the king of Hutzor. At this point, it was Jabin. Jabin was a name uh, that was is recurring through history for kings of Hutzor. It's the same name as the king that Joshua drove out and Joshua killed, and Joshua would burn Hutzor to the ground uh, around uh, this around fourteen hundred, a bit thereafter. And then you would have a later destruction of Hatzor as well at the hands of the Israelites. And this was is found in the archaeological record there. And this is actually one of the major destructions of this town just north of the Sea of Galilee. That's the context for Judges chapter 4 and 5. Judges 5 is called the Song of Deborah. It's, it's, it's a recounting of what happened in Judges chapter 4. And it gives more details. And it tells us at this time, which is around 1200, around the same time that these ships were wrecking off the coast, where the tin ingots were found from Cornwall, it's around that same time. It tells us that not all the Israelites fought alongside Deborah. Not all of them were there. There were seven tribes or so, I think, that are mentioned there fighting alongside Deborah. Issachar fights along Deborah. Naphtali fights along or alongside Deborah. Manasseh fights alongside Deborah. Probably the Ephraimites too. One of the other tribes I think it mentions there. But they would be victorious. And yet there were some tribes around 1200, 1250 in this time period that weren't fighting amongst the Israelites or with the Israelites. There were Israelite tribes that said, hey, my life outside of the Confederacy of Israel is more important to me than taking out this Canaanite king. Who were these tribes and what were they doing? There are four specific tribes that are mentioned, and you can see this if you go down to verse 15. Verse 15 of Judges chapter 5, it says this, The princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley for the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart or great indecision amongst the Reubenites at this point, what they were going to do. Should we fight? Should we not? Verse 16, why abode you, Reuben, among the sheepfolds to hear the bleatings of the flocks? For the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Very interesting English translation here. But you see there that Reuben, he remained among the bleating, uh, bleating sheep, and he didn't come and fight. 
He was indecisive. He didn't join Deborah in this fight, verse 17. Gilead abode beyond the Jordan also. So we're talking now about the two tribes, Reuben and Gad, that were beyond the Jordan. Gilead is just the region that which Gad uh, lived in, his tribal inheritance. They had their own uh, way of doing things, and they wanted not at this time to come and fight with Israel that were fighting against uh, fighting with Deborah and Barak. So they didn't help. Continuing to ver- read verse 17, notice these two, tri- two other tribes that didn't help. Gilead abode beyond the Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships or abide in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. You've got two tribes who we've just covered are located in the northern tri- northern area of Israel, Dan to the north of the Sea of Galilee, and you also have the Asherites, which are dwelling in the territory amongst the Canaanites of where the Phoenicians were in this territory. And it says specifically, what are they doing? Dan is remaining in ships and Asher is on the seashore abiding in his breaches. And so this is really interesting. You have two other tribes that don't fight with Deborah, that although their territory was very close to where this battle was taking place, if you look at where Hatzor is, if you look at the Valley of Jezreel, the, if you, the tribes of Asher and the tribes of Dan are, are basically surrounding the territory of King Jabin, and yet they didn't come to fight. They had their business elsewhere, and the Bible says that their business was on the seashore and in ships right at the time that these ships were sunk in the Haifa Bay, which was the territory of the Phoenicians and the Asherites, and Dan there, it says, abode in ships. Now, this is uh, really brought out wonderfully in a piece by Lawrence Steger, not necessarily the connection to, to the Phoenicians or the connections to Tin Ingots, but he talks about these tribes and why they would abide in ships or not be a party to this battle with the other Israelite tribes. He writes this about the word abide or yagur in Hebrew. He says it's related to the word ger, commonly translated sojourner, stranger, resident, alien, or the like. And then he gives some more background. He talks about how the Danites moved to the north. And then he says, in light of this background, I would translate the verse about Dan in the Song of Deborah, as we just read, as follows. Quote, and Dan, why did he serve as a client on ships? In this translation, Yagur has the meaning to serve as a client, as a Gur, rather than the trans- traditional translation of just abiding in ships. By client, I mean economically dependent, attached to a patron, a kind of economic ward. So he's saying here that the people actually on these ships, they were Danites. That's that's the translation of the Bible. You're abiding and dwelling and working on these ships, traveling everywhere. Where were they traveling? Well, if you take the uh, the the ships that were sunk at Haifa Bay around twelve around twelve hundred BCE, those ships came from Cornwall. They came from the the tin mines at Cornwall. Then he talks about Asher. Asher, and then it says here that they, uh, if I just read what the King James says in this translation, Asher has continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. And this is this is what um, Lawrence Steger, very famous archaeologist, I think he died maybe a year or two ago, he wrote about this a number of years ago, this, this passage. 
He says, these villages in the hills overlook and have easy access to the rich maritime plain of Akko. Speaking about the, uh, the Asherites that dwelt among the people there. For their tribal homeland, tribesmen from Asher may have computed, commuted to work as agricultural laborers on the Canaanite estates in the plain, or as seamen and dock workers at the port of Akko. Whatever the case, these new discoveries give meaning to the saying in the Song of Deborah, Asher remained on the seacoast and dwelt in its dwelt and sorry and over its inlets dwelt they lived on the coast amongst these people then he'll highlight he summarizes his article this way the reluctance of dan and asher to join the highlanders in this war against the canaanites seems more understandable in light of their economic dependence on non-israelite groups in the maritime trade like Reuben and Gilead or Gad, Dan and Asher had ties to non-Israelites that proved stronger than those that bound them to their tribal confederation. That's why they didn't fight with them. They were busy. They were busy on ships. They were busy working the docks. They were busy traveling as clients on ships. And other historical documents would bring us out, bring us up to date that these people that were with them were called the Phoenicians. Again, without ethnicity, we don't know them. We don't know where they came from, but they exist the same time as the Israelites do, the same time that Asher and Dan are there. And they're traveling, traveling all through the Mediterranean, and they're also traveling up into Cornwall. Now, why I bring this up and why we're talking about it is because we've had several people write in to... Uh, Chris's programs talking about the modern identity of the Israelite tribes, the lost 10 tribes. Uh, several people love it. A lot of people, the majority love it. They love, love the history, but we also have few people writing comments that this is crazy. You know, it's very unlikely. This is all folklore. It's all, you know, fiction, but this kind of shows you this history that I've just covered that there, if you put together the, the Bible and history and archeology, span you would, you would say that the Danites should be up there and the Asherites should be up there on, in Cornwall, mining these mines, putting stuff on ships, and bringing it back. That's what the biblical record, with now the archaeological record, would tell us. So then you go in and you read some of the history of these places, of Cornwall, of Devon, and you see that in their own histories— they have and they talk about how the people that dwelt among them in this in these territories or that were, were in in Devon and Cornwall they were different they were different to plenty of the other people that had end up living in Britain and they have a similar uh, language to those in Ireland if you go down to south of Brittany as well there's a similar group of people and they're very different and they would set up their own religious worship different to others yeah, it's definitely not Israelite worship in terms of what you consider what was happening at Shiloh or Jerusalem, but it's very much Israelite worship that happened in Tel Dan. And you would also see that the original inhabitants as far back as we can find it of this region were called something very interesting. They were called Dan Moines. Dan Moines was the name of these people. And if you go back to the British historian from the 16th century, he talks about the history of this place and he talks about the Dan Moines that lived there. And if you look at the simple version of Dan, Dan doesn't have to mean 
the uh, necessarily coming from the man Dan or named after the father Dan. However, it can mean that. It can mean actual Dan as in the tribe of Dan. And Moines, he brings out that British people of the day, Moines means miners, miners, Moina, mine. And so this area or the people there were named after the mines. And I think Dan can mean hill or something like that. But it can also mean Dan, as in the man Dan. And so you've had a history of people from in the last 400 years that have said that this whole region of Cornwall was occupied by the people called Dan's miners after the biblical man Dan. That was the written history. It's very hard to, to prove such things, that it would date back to biblical times. But then we have archaeology, and we have the modern methods of archaeology, and we have the biblical source, and we can put all these things together now. We have a folklore. We have a written history, not by an eyewitness, but hundred years after the fact. We have Herodotus telling us that there was travels of the Phoenicians to the Tin Islands that we know now, based on the discovery of the ingots, there's no more confusion over it like there has been. Check out the Wikipedia page. There's still confusion of where these are. But they are the areas of Cornwall and some of the islands attached to it and Devon. That's the Phoenicians went. Now, who was serving as a client on the Phoenician ships? Who was working alongside on the docks of the Phoenicians at this time, as brought out by the biblical record? You have Asher and you have Dan. And then you have that history put alongside the history of the original inhabitants of this area as far back as we go. And we see that they were called Dan's Miners. One of the translations of this could be called Dan's Miners. And then you can put it all together. That You would then say that some of that rich folklore, that rich history of written sources, is based in the historical record. It is now based in the archaeological record. That the tribe of Dan could well have been inside uh, on the Cornwall coast and on the interior digging out the mines, finding the tin, exporting it back, having a great knowledge of how to work with tin and bronze. And this would be their tradition. This would be what they did. There would be some that would stay around the area of Israel or inside Israel, but there would also be colonies of Danites that would go elsewhere throughout the Middle East, throughout North Africa, and then settle eventually in the British Isles. That was the rich folklore, and now we have historical fact that these people were there. These people were there at that time based on these tin ingots. Now, that this putting all this together, I mean, that should be encouraging, especially if you've listened to all these programs by Christopher Reams, especially if you've requested um, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. I've just been talking about Great Britain. I've been talking about the tribe of Dan as well, uh, specifically. We go to the Bible, and it says that Dan names things after his father. That's what he does. And we know that he may has, he's, not, he's, he's ready to, to cut off the moorings, if you like, and head to a foreign land. And that's what we see happening all across Europe, actually. The name of Dan is everywhere, all through the coastline of Europe, and it's even on the Cornish coast, and it's even used in the name of the people that lived there originally. 
And Mr. Armstrong brings this out in his book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. If you haven't, please request a copy. It's gone to over 6 million people. It's extremely interesting and it's very poignant as well for our time right now because it shows in that he shows in that book that the identity of these modern nations of Israel has been found, that has been unlocked. And if that is found, then you know who all the prophecies are about. The Bible is a book about Israel. The Bible is not a book about the Jewish state. It's included, of course, the Jewish state. Thankfully, the Jews have kept the kept God's law of the Sabbath. Um, the rest of the Israelites never did, which makes them the people that are easiest to plot. Plot the, Follow the Sabbath keeping and you follow the Jews. But there's more tribes to Israel than just the Jews. There's more tribes than Levi, Benjamin, and Judah who made up the southern kingdom, who returned under Zerubbabel, who then set up shop there all the way into the first century, who then got spread out through the Roman Empire when the city, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70, and then through the Bar Kokhba revolt 150 or 60 years later, and then came back, came back at the behest of the British Empire, pushed by the British Empire, who had wanted to do it actually for hundreds of years previously. You can see that. In the British record, there were plenty of people that wanted to help the Jews get back there, but the Jews themselves weren't ready until you had great leaders amongst the Jewish people, like Chaim Weizmann, that came out and pushed hard for a Jewish repatriation to their historic homeland. And they have come back, and they have come back to Israel, and that was prophesied in your Bible. But what about the other tribes? What about the prophecies of the lost ten tribes of Israel? Israel. The southern kingdom wasn't known as Israel. That was known as Judah. Judah's return to the land of Israel. What about the lost 10 tribes of Israel? They exist. They're people. They're people today. And they, they moved out of that territory, mainly in mass, during the time the Assyrian Empire, uh, when they took over the northern tribes and then would migrate elsewhere. But they are prophesied to be nations today. They are prophesied to be peoples today. And biblical prophecy concerns them not just the little nation of Israel today. And so we need to find out where they were, where they are. And the United States and Britain in Prophecy is the best book on the planet that will show you where they went. And walking around the headlands of Cornwall last weekend and putting that together along findings off the coast of Israel last year, we can see physical proof of part of that book we can see actual proof that there was mass migration of Israelites anciently. Um, and those peoples have continued in those locations as much as, as much as we can determine up to this day. Now, if you haven't listened to Christopher Eames' programs, please go back and do that. I think they're, they're very interesting, uh, and especially his last program about why it's important and it summarizes a lot of the findings about where the Lost Ten Tribes are and why it's important for you to understand that. I can leave a link to that specific program in the show notes for you today. I'll also leave a link for you from this study. There was articles everywhere when it came out in 2019. Look, all the tin that was used, uh, that was used to make bronze that was probably used even in the temple all that tin came from the Cornish coast. Crazy. Look how far it is. Look how far away the Phoenicians traveled. No one mentions the tribe of Dan. Nobody mentions the tribe of Asher. Why not? Why not mention the fact that you've got traditions that say that the tribe of Dan was with the Phoenicians 
and that he was right there on in Cornwall. If you go back to their historical documents, why not put that together? But nobody does, it seems. But as you read through this this article uh, about the discovery of the ingots, when it says that in the 1200s they were shipwrecked here and they came from the Cornish coast, know that the people on the Israelite coast on those ships, according to your Bible, weren't just Phoenicians. They were Danites and they were also Asherites. Thank you very much for listening to today's program. I'll be with you next week as well. If you'd like to send some feedback on the program today's or any others or tips of uh, items you want it to, you want us to cover in the archaeological or historical world as it relates to the Bible, we're not we're not archaeological experts in all these things. We have excavated Jerusalem for the past uh, ten or so years. Uh, we are involved in archaeological excavations there, so we have a firm grounding of the subject. But we also have this connection to the Bible that can help you see connections, help you can see biblical proof, help you can really just give life to the biblical narrative, I would say more so than, than other people can do. So please then write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il and we'll do our best to get to them and perhaps even cover some of the material that you suggest to us. Have a good week.